Gerontological Society of America Momentum Discussions. Welcome to the Momentum Discussion podcast series, where researchers, educators, and practitioners stimulate dialogue on trends with great momentum to advance gerontology. The Gerontological Society of America, Meaningful Lives as We Age. Welcome to Science and Storytelling, a GSA 75th anniversary podcast on aging. I'm Hanamori Scablo, doctoral student at the University of Missouri in Columbia. Today, we're talking about romantic and intimate relationships in older adulthood with Dr. Christine Prue, Associate Professor of Human Development and Family Science at the University of Missouri and a fellow of the Gerontological Society of America. Guided by the belief that social relationships are the bedrock of our health and well-being at all ages, Dr. Prue's research focuses on the connections between adults' relationships and their health with an emphasis on marriage and caregiving. Welcome to the show, Dr. Prue. Thank you for having me. So let's begin with the most basic foundation. Why do you think it's important to study older adults' romantic relationships? That's a good question. So um, from a very early age, research-wise and career-wise, I've recognized that while even us scientists, you know, we can talk about our work, we talk a lot about the constructs we use in our work, but the longer you speak with people, the more likely they are to somehow bring in a close relationship, Um, one of their own, typically a parent, a sibling, a partner, a spouse. Um, And from those earliest conversations with research scientists, I picked up on that thread, you know, that our relationships are so critical to our well-being. And I was raised to think about well-being as fairly holistic. So not just medical health indicators, but mental health, thriving rather than just managing, um, thinking about health in that way. And so if you think about the relationships that we're embedded in, I mean, there's so much research that shows that that's critical for our well-being, but it manifests in different ways. So, producing warm emotions and feeling senses of belongingness and feeling like we are loved and worthy, that's all good for our health and for our well-being. Um, being surrounded by people with whom you feel safe, that's important for our health and well-being. People that we are connected to watch out for us. They check in with us. They might support our health behaviors. They might undermine our health behaviors. And so that permeates our lives from birth to death. And I just, I find that really compelling. And it's a point of fairly, I don't want to say easy, no intervention or prevention is easy, but it's a a point that holds across the life course that is an entryway to intervention and preventions that are or can be cost-effective and feasible. And so, we can do, it's an indicator of our health and our well-being that we can do something about. And that appeals to me too. I so appreciate that because when we, when we think about the ways in which we tend to interact with the medical community, we as, as individuals, um, it's likely an individual experience. We go for our annual checkup alone. If we need to have um, something like surgery, we're on the table alone. Um, and we're often interacting with doctors and, and nurses and, and medical professionals alone. But of course, we have so many other people who are involved in that process, whether it's folks who help us, um, who bring us to the doctor, who take care of us post-op. 
and folks who are influencing our care or lack thereof before and after any kind of medical procedure as well. Yes. And the medical enterprise in the United States is still set up with the assumption that there is someone to care for us after any of those things, after an appointment that requires an inpatient uh, surgery or some sort of procedure. When you go home from any sort of particularly overnight procedure where you've been in the hospital one or more nights, there's an expectation that someone is around to come get you and can be there for you if you need them. Um, In fact, there are many procedures where they won't let you go unless they know that someone you know and, and care about and who cares about you is there. So we do, we engage in all of these medical appointments or procedures, oftentimes, as you noted, alone. And yet the expectation is that there is someone who can help provide care or oversight for us um, upon release. So it's a very interesting juxtaposition when you put it that way. And and just so listeners might envision how this research fits into their own lives, what are some examples of how research findings, either yours or in the field, broadly speaking, translate into practical use or into day-to-day life? One of the earliest studies I did in my career looked at the, you know, took the entire research literature on marital quality and um, well-being, which is primarily measured as life satisfaction or depressive symptoms or lack thereof. And looked at how tightly connected those two things are. So does our does the quality of our marital relationship impact our health? And it was a resounding yes, right? Like the evidence clearly pointed toward the fact that the better quality a relationship like a marriage is, the higher spouse's health tends to be, the less depressed they tend to be, the higher their life satisfaction. So that's really clear. And what's really interesting, when I conducted that study, I examined the direction of effects. So if we look at marital quality impacting health and well-being, is that relationship going in that direction from a, you know, from a research study perspective, is that direction stronger than if we look at the quality of spouses' health and mental well-being impacting the quality of their relationship? And it's the former that was stronger. So the direction of effects supports that it's the quality of our relationships that has a long-term impact on our mental health and our physical health. And that was, you know, I suspected that the field was leaning that way. A lot of researchers were finding this, but it's, it's exciting to point to amassing all of the findings together and analyzing them sort of as their own sample and finding support for this, this direction of effects, so to speak, where the relationship quality was really the driver um, or one of the many drivers of health and well-being. And so we live that every day, right? You know, if you think about someone that you love and care for and who you have an enduring relationship with and a regular um, amount of interaction with them, you you text them, you talk with them, you might live with them, you think about them, you care about them. And if you're in a high quality relationship, that's really protective for your health and well-being. If it's a low quality relationship, it can really wear on you, probably through stress responses, um, which is a whole other, you know, whole other field of research. So that is something I think we live every day, but we don't necessarily, you know, on average, unless you study it every day, you know, like those of us who do, you don't think about how good that is for you, but it is. It's it's you know, we we do a lot of health protective activities every day. We work out, we take vitamins, we eat healthy, we drink a lot of water. And, 
you know, we can think about adding, we have positive interactions with people that we love to that list of things we do that protects our health. So yeah, so that's one example. I could probably spend the entire time talking about examples of these things and how they relay into our, our daily lives. Well, I think that's fascinating because we do have a tendency to compartmentalize our, our health activities. You know, you mentioned exercise and diet. We sort of, we tend to separate those from other things like social engagements, but they're related, right? Social connection is, is a health-related activity. And I think that um, many people really understood the impact and the importance of social connections during the pandemic when we were separated from them. Right. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious, given what you know about the field of romantic relationships, um, and particularly in older adulthood, what do you think the impact of COVID has been in this study of romantic relationships and health? You know, I'm thinking about folks who were laid off or were remote and were quarantining at home together. That's a level of proximity and intensity that most relationships don't have to go through. Um, There's also stress and there's fear related to somebody's physical safety, to one's health. Um, How do you think that that plays a role in the current climate? I think there are multiple ways that's impacted us. And I, along with others, have ongoing data collection trying to understand how COVID did impact interpersonal relationships and family relationships, romantic relationships, all part of that. There's a lot of theoretical work that suggests that stress can undermine a relationship. And obviously, we know it's not great for our health all the time, particularly chronic stress. Um, But that acute stress, so stress that is less long-lasting, um, and I think I will say this in the midst of COVID, which I still feel very much like we are in, it's hard to think about the pandemic as an acute stressor because it has been the word we hear all the time, right? It's unprecedented in these unprecedented times, but it is very few of us who are alive today have had experience with a global pandemic. And so it feels endless because um, it's so disruptive and it's so different and we we're not nothing really can prepare you in life for dealing with this level of a stressor. But I think we'll find, hopefully, that in the big picture, it turns out to be an acute stressor. It was extremely stressful for lots of people all at the same time, but it didn't last for 20 years. And then I'm not trying to discount individuals who are suffering from long COVID or anything like that. But my point being that sometimes stressors like this can reinforce, build up, strengthen a relationship. Partners find that they have resources they didn't ever have to draw on, but now that they do, it's beneficial to the relationship. Um, There's a sense of particularly couples, I think, who can rally around and, and approach the stressor as a team the relationship is likely to benefit from that because that sense of we being bigger and greater than either individual I um, is really powerful. And so I think some relationships stand to find themselves strengthened after something like COVID. That's obviously easier to do for couples who are well-resourced, who are secure financially, who are not dealing with a pileup of additional stressors. But the fact is that many couples are dealing not just with the global pandemic, but the stressors that you mentioned earlier. So job loss, insufficient financial security, um, illness, uh, worry about uh, children, worry about older parents, worry about each other. 
Um, and that type of strain can really wear on a relationship. I would say even a relationship that has a good foundation, that strain, particularly if you are cut off from other social ties. So, I've always been of the belief that one reason romantic relationships are good for us is that they are just one of many relationships we're engaged in. And so, if you think about the broader context of any individual, they might have their romantic partner, but then they'll have close friends, siblings, family, um, extended family, their own children, the children of their partner. And it's really that... um, multi-layered configuration that's so beneficial to us, assuming again that these relationships are of good quality. COVID, the pandemic, cut us off from some of that, particularly the face-to-face interaction that I think many of us, you know, we might live with a partner, romantic partner, and we might have drastically increase the amount of time we see and interact with them. But at the same time, we might be drastically decreasing the amount of time that we're seeing and interacting with our friends, colleagues, coworkers, um, neighbors. And so, we're asking a lot, I think, of romantic relationships, particularly ones in which the two partners live together. And I think ultimately that is a strain when you have to ask so much of one person. My personal belief, and, and research would back this up, is that no one person can be everything to you, right? You. That's why we have networks, social networks of people that we turn to. And the pandemic has really challenged us. Although it's not germane to my research, I also think the fact that the pandemic put us out of face-to-face contact with a lot of people hurts us because it decreases the amount of literally physical contact we have with people. We think about the power of just a hug. Even if we were fortunate enough to not live alone during the pandemic, you're hugging the same one person or four people or in my household, it's just me and my two kids and my partner, my husband. And so, yes, there was plenty of hugging going on, but I missed hugging my friends. I missed hugging family, you know, outside of the the three people that I had daily contact with. And so, I think there are so many ways that it's potentially relationship strengthening, but also putting strain on relationships that, you know, we just don't fully understand yet how that's how that's really going to come to come to bear once and if this is over, you know, whatever the post looks like, post-pandemic looks like, we don't know, but there's a ton of great research going on trying to find that out. Right. It's such a uh, an area that's uh, growing and, and working as we speak. I mean, like you said, we're still in the middle of the pandemic. We're recording this in July, 2021. And so this is an ongoing event and research is slow. And so research takes time and it'll be It'll be some some time, if not some years, before we really are able to reflect, not only personally, but also empirically from a research-based perspective on what this time has meant for us, broadly speaking, as well as for our relationships. Um, So that's the the current state of the literature and an emerging um, focus for research. What do you see as the future direction for this field? Ooh, that's an interesting question. There are... As you know, and, and some listeners are about to find out, you know, I, I'm a big quantitative scientist. I really like numbers. So there are, and in order to know what to do with all these data that we collect on relationships and families, you know, we have to analyze them with the best methods that we have available. And there are so many cool new ones, exciting new ones coming out that I think will better allow us to understand close relationships embedded in a broader context. And I think 
really the last two years have been a wake-up call to many social scientists that we've been ignoring a lot of contextual factors that impact the lives of individuals in the United States and elsewhere. And it's time for us to start paying attention. And so I think with improved methods and a renewed sense of, wow, we, we really need to better understand people in their daily lives, in the context of their daily lives. Yes, during a pandemic, but also outside of that, that we're going to start seeing more what, what we often call contextualized research. I mean, that sounds sort of fuzzy and vague, and I think it's meant to be encompassing a lot of areas, but um, better understanding the chronic stressors that individuals with minority status in our country experience. We've, we've largely ignored this. Events during the pandemic and the pandemic itself have amplified our attention to that, which is a really good thing. We talk about in the scientific world, the social determinants of health. And certainly close relationships are part of that. Friendship relationships, our network relationships, I'd argue even our, what we often refer to as weak ties, our acquaintance relationships can impact our health, but so does our zip code. So does how far away we have to go to get fresh produce. So does our financial security and the systems that might make financial security easier for some people than others. And so I think we're we're starting to peel back those layers more intentionally. It's no longer a niche science that just some people are doing. I think a lot of people are coming to grips with the fact like, oh, I, I really have focused on people that are fairly well off. They have a good amount of resources, but what about those who don't? And trying to better understand the contexts in which relationships are able to benefit us. Because even with a great partner, if you're suffering from chronic illness, you have job insecurity, you are worried about your children's well-being and whether you can find adequate and affordable care for them on a daily basis. You know, all of these stressors that pile up around us, a great relationship is still a great resource, but it's it can't be the only one. We have to, to maximize the impact of our relationships. We have to provide a base quality of life, I think, for individuals across the life course. And my hope is that science is going to start unveiling ways that we can do that, that we're willing to invest in. So we've discussed the science and let's dive into the storytelling. How did you become interested in the field of aging? Was this a lifelong dream? Oh gosh, no. <laughs> no, um, it happened, right? It, it happened because of great interactions with really influential people in my life. I am a first-generation college student, so there was a point in my life where going to college wasn't necessarily a given. I, it was a thing I wanted to do, but it took me a little while to to figure that out. And throughout my college years, I attended three different institutions as an undergrad, just trying to find the right fit. And I landed at a, a wonderful undergraduate institution called Regis College um, outside of Boston and had amazing mentors there and had the opportunity to help one of my professors with some research. And it was more archival research where I was helping her organize some data she had and do some data entry 
And I loved every minute of it. And I loved that I was given access to her office and could sit on a Sunday evening entering data in her office in this beautiful old building, you know, in in a lovely area of Massachusetts. And I loved thinking about how all of the things that she was studying related to one another. And, And to be honest, I don't even remember what the project was about, but I remember the feelings that it evoked in me. And so research, I'd always loved writing and thought that I was actually going to be a creative writer. That's originally what I went to college for. But I also loved math and found that part of my brain just loved having numbers in front of it. And so um, I did an honors thesis in undergrad and decided I would go to grad school after taking a year off and went to grad school thinking that I wanted to work with adolescents and perhaps in a clinical setting and got paired with a mentor who studied more adult relationships, marriage being one of them. And began working with her. And it was as though this door that had been closed, a door I didn't even know was there, just burst open. And I was fascinated by how strong that association was between relationships and adulthood and our depression. At the time, it was primarily depression that I was studying. And I just became fascinated by this and trying to understand where does friendship fit into this and and where do other family relationships fit in. And so from that point on, I was studying adults and I was not in a graduate program that had a gerontology focus. I took one gerontology class. Honestly, it was because it was a class I could take, right? It was one of the few ones left that I hadn't taken and I needed one more class to fill my credit hours. And I was really interested. I just had never thought about gerontology as an area of study. And then I realized I've been studying adults in midlife already and what happens as they continue to age and the relationships that they're in continue to age. And so when I started working at the University of Missouri, there was a um, wonderful gerontologist here, Dr. Teresa Cooney, who um, was sort of my informal mentor and um, really was my sort of gateway person into aging. And I joined the Gerontological Society of America and started having a more intentional focus on midlife and later life in my research. And partly my interest was that it was relatively under-researched at the time, although I would still argue that's still true. But also, I was highly invested in thinking about aging as something to look forward to, not to dread. And we have so many ageist attitudes and so many fears about aging. And I wanted to contribute to science that demonstrated that there's lots of ways to live a high quality life as you age. And I find that exciting. I find it, I find that I have passion for it. I find that it is life affirming. It's just a really exciting area to be in. That's a beautiful story. And you know, not only did you have these series of happy accidents that led you to the place where you are now, but also you're doing really wonderful work. And in 2018, you were selected as a GSA fellow. And for folks who aren't familiar with this phrase, it's a prestigious status that recognizes outstanding work in gerontology. And in fact, it's the highest class of membership within GSA. So what did that recognition mean to you? And broadly speaking, how has your membership in GSA influenced your career? Yeah, obviously it was a tremendous honor. I was 
I was really excited, frankly, you know, just it was joining the ranks of some of the um, top researchers and clinicians in GSA. So it, it was really exciting. And, and it was actually particularly exciting that I got, um, you know, you get a plaque and you get recognized at the Gerontological Society of America's annual meeting. And it happened to be in Boston that year, which is my stomping grounds, right? I grew up north of Boston in southern New Hampshire. And so that made it even better. <laughs> you know, it was, it was really exciting. Um, and I was very honored and, and just really humbled by it and by the nomination itself. How has your membership in GSA influenced your career? Yes. Okay. So membership in GSA for me has been, well, in terms of my career, I've met people I never would have met if I weren't a member of GSA. One of the things I greatly appreciate about GSA is its size. And, um, you know, most academics, most professors and researchers will belong to multiple societies, um, you know, academic societies, and they'll be of various sizes. And GSA is is large for the field of social science, um, although part of the reason for that is because there's a biological sciences section. So, the multidisciplinarity of the society for me means that I have access to research outside of my comfort zone, which I am a really big believer in. Um, So, it means that I will, you know, when I attend the annual meetings, I'll go to sessions that are primarily about biological sciences. I will attend sessions that are about policy. I will attend um, sessions that are about the up-and-coming um, student members in the society. So, it has allowed me to grow my network. I, I think I've said this already, but I'm a believer in pushing us out of our comfort zones, right? Like, when you specialize at the level of a doctorate degree, you become really great at a limited number of things. And that is that is part of our jobs, but I like being pushed. I liked, I, you know, I, and GSA does that for me. It forces me to think about things in a new way. It forces me to expand my, my reading list. It, it encourages me to talk to people who might approach problems in a different way and to learn from them. So it's given me so many opportunities to grow as a scholar and to grow as a person and um, to make new friends, to make new social connections that are good for my health and my well-being, right? Um, to come full circle on that. And yeah, and so that makes that makes me a better person. It makes me a better scholar and it makes my science better too. So 100% a win in terms of joining GSA. It was one of the best things I did in my career. Well, I think that's a great place for us to leave it. Thank you again for taking the time to speak with me today. It's been a delight. Thank you for having me. To learn more about the Gerontological Society of America, visit geron.org. The Gerontological Society of America was founded in 1945 to promote the scientific study of aging, cultivate excellence in interdisciplinary aging research, and education to advance innovations in practice and policy. For more information about GSA, visit geron.org.